Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Litsur. Here's your festival news update for September. This month, September 22nd to 24th, Noir City Detroit returns to the Motor City's historic Redford Theater for a three-day, six-film festival, with Eddie Muller as your host. The Detroit Festival kicks off on Friday night, September 22nd, with a Jacques Turner double feature, Out of the Past and Nightfall, followed on Saturday night with a double dose of psychotic violence, Joseph H. Lewis's Gun Crazy, Not to be Missed, and Cy Enfield's Try and Get Me, the latter a 35mm restoration funded by the Film Noir Foundation. Sunday afternoon, September 24th, wraps up the festival with two star-studded noirs, John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle and Robert Parrish's Cry Danger, the latter another FNF-funded restoration. Tickets for Noir City Detroit are available now on the Redford Theatre's website at redfordtheatre.com, and so is the festival's $25 all-movie pass for all six of the festival's films. And here's what's great about the all-movie pass. You'll be part of a reception and Q&A with Eddie Muller, the Tsar of Noir, on Saturday, September 23rd, from 6 to 7.30 p.m., prior to the evening screenings. The Saturday evening reception with Eddie is just for all-movie pass holders. And, like I said, individual tickets and the all-movie pass are available now at the Redford Theatre's website. With our episode this month on classic film noir musical scores, we ended up with enough material for two episodes. Today will be part one, and part two will be posted in two weeks. And now, let's meet our guest. Our guest this month is Stephen C. Smith. He is an Emmy-nominated producer of documentaries, including many episodes of AMC Backstory and A&E Biography. His film noir-related productions include profiles on Richard Widmark and Gene Tierney, plus DVD bonus features for Roadhouse, Black Widow, Woman on the Run, and Too Late for Tears. He has also written extensively about classic Hollywood composers, including the book A Heart at Fire Center, The Life and Music of Bernard Herrmann, as well as the upcoming book Music by Max Steiner, the epic life of Hollywood's most influential composer. Stephen also contributed a piece for the Noir City e-magazine's fall 2011 issue called Bernard Herrmann and the Music of Desire, an essay on the composer's noir soundtracks. And that is the subject we'll be discussing today, movie soundtracks from the classic era of film noir. Stephen, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I really love your podcast, so I'm thrilled to be on it. Okay, thanks very much. And we have a lot of music to get to in this episode. With uh, We do. With a couple of things to mention to start off here. We'll be hearing a mix of recordings from the original movie soundtracks, as well as some stereo re-recordings from later years. So for some of these tracks, you might notice some differences in the audio, which and that'll be the, the reason for that. And most of the music selections we'll play will be about one to two minutes long, with a handful of them going a bit longer at around four to five minutes. So the type of music often associated with film noir is along the lines of the theme we just heard. That was Jerry Goldsmith's main theme from Chinatown. Yeah. So people tend to think of a solo horn or saxophone with jazz backup. But as we'll be exploring in this episode, that really wasn't the case for most classic film noir scores, right? No, it wasn't. Uh, music written for what uh, we think of as the golden age of noir is really quite intriguingly diverse. And it wasn't until the 1950s, uh, several years after many of the great noir films were made, that we start to get that jazz sound in Hollywood soundtracks, which we can talk about. But what's fascinating is there was a more European sound to most 
of the 1940s film noir titles that we'll talk about. As you were going to mention, there's some just some background in movie music going from the silent era to the sound era, and the way music changed at that time. And in particular, one of the most uh, important figures in that is the subject of your next book, Max Steiner. Yes, uh, Max Steiner certainly was. And before we get into music for film noir, I think it's worth spending just a couple of minutes to talk about music in films, period, because I think a lot of people aren't aware or perhaps have forgotten that when uh, Hollywood switched to talkies, which became official in 1929, after roughly 30-odd years of seeing silent films with music, suddenly most producers and directors in Hollywood were terrified of putting music in their films unless it was a musical number or unless there was a very obvious source like a dance band on screen. But for the first few years of talkies, you will find a very arid soundtrack. That's the era of hiss and crackle and very little underscoring. And it was simply because since talkies were such a realistic medium compared to the silence, the filmmakers felt that having music under dialogue that wasn't coming from any on-screen source would be strange to people, and uh, I have uh, confirmed doing my research for the upcoming Steiner book that we really owe film music as we know it today, all the way up to John Williams' scores, we really owe David O. Selznick and Max Steiner a great deal, because it was Selznick during his single year at RKO in 1932 who empowered Max Steiner, the the, uh, head of the music department at RKO then, to write these uh, full scores or movies, and by full I mean music that uh, was under a lot of dialogue and that in cases of early films like Bird of Paradise and uh, a lot of The Most Dangerous Game was almost start to finish. And then when King Kong came along the next year, Steiner really showed what a good symphonic orchestral score could do for a a feature film. And after that, um, every Hollywood studio develop their own music department in a different way, and film music proliferates at a very fast rate after uh, Steiner's work of 32-33. And let's move on now to the classic film noir era, starting in the early 1940s. We're going to break down, as we mentioned, different scores by uh, several different composers. So no better place to start talking with film noir than the Maltese Falcon. So we're going to hear (laughs) some of the score from that one, which was written by uh, Adolf Deutsch. Yes, Adolf Deutsch, an interesting man and very, I think, underrated today. And it's worth mentioning that he has something in common with a number of other people we'll be speaking about, and that is that he was a Broadway guy. He had extensive experience in the 1920s, as did Alfred Newman and Max Steiner and Roy Webb, working in uh, New York City, um, arranging and sometimes writing music for Broadway shows. And so I think these men had a strong sense of the theatrical and what was popular combined with a very solid, in most cases, a very solid schooling in concert music in what some people would call, although I really don't like the term, serious music, the music of Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, all of those 18th and 19th century composers that really, you know, are the cornerstone of classical music. So people like Deutsch were just perfect for film music because they had a sense of the dramatic and a sense of how to work very quickly as they had done on Broadway when a show was being written and something was being changed every night. So that was perfect in Hollywood where you had a relatively short time to write a score, uh, along with a really strong sense of how to write music, not just tunes, but uh, orchestral music where you're working out complex chords, where you're deciding what instruments are going to play, uh, what parts. 
And uh, Deutsch was actually, I should say, uh, he, we also owe him a debt because he became a mentor to John Williams. And in one of uh, Adolf Deutsch's last scores for Billy Wilder's The Apartment, which has a very prominent piano theme, that's John Williams that you'll hear, who contributed a bit of noir music to uh, The Long Goodbye later, we could say. Um, so uh, Adolf Deutsch's influence is important, and he is also typical, when we listen to this music um, from 1941 for the Maltese Falcon, he's very typical of the Warner Brothers sound. And the Warner Brothers musical sound was unlike any other uh, orchestra in all of Hollywood. When you hear that Max Steiner fanfare at the beginning of an old Warner Brothers movie and all that brass, you know that that movie comes from Warner Brothers even if you don't see The Shield. And... Um, Deutsch was uh, writing in that tradition that Steiner was doing, because Steiner at this point was over at Warner Brothers as well. And it's music that is very prominent on the soundtrack, but I would argue that the Warner Brothers films have a very heightened reality. I mean, yes, they're gritty. Yes, they're, they're more realistic, let's say, in many ways. But Jack Warner loved film music. Um, he sometimes said to people like Steiner, you can start at the beginning and finish at the end, and we'll just dip it when we don't want it. He, he knew how much music added to the energy of his films, and we certainly think of energy when we think of Warner Brothers. So you will hear in this very dramatic main title for the Maltese Falcon a lot of that energy along with a wonderfully mysterious and exotic theme for the Falcon itself. Let's talk about arguably the number one composer of film noir music. For me, he's number one, and that is Miklos Roja, one of the great mm -hmm. composers of classic Hollywood. So we're going to start with, we're, we're going to hear several of his different film scores here from film noir. Let's start with one of the biggest ones, which is Double Indemnity. Yes. And it's fascinating to think that a Hungarian-born composer who saw a concert career for himself in symphonic and chamber music ended up being not only one of the greatest film composers in Hollywood of the 20th century, but was the foremost composer of what we would now think of as a noir soundtrack in the 1940s. And um, I had the pleasure of interviewing him in the early 1980s for my book on Bernard Herrmann. And he was a, a, a real European gentleman. He was not in great health, but he was a, a, a very elegant erudite host a tray was brought in by a servant with all these wonderful things to eat and his home looked uh, a bit like norma desmond's in sunset boulevard a film he didn't score but it certainly have, it, it certainly had the feeling of someone who had lived in a home for many 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 decades and and um, and yet he continued to work into the 1980s and was uh, 
it's fascinating that we we know him from scores like Ben Hur much later and other genres. But yes, he really created a noir sound in the '40s, and Double Indemnity starts all of that. Um, as we know, this is a film that Billy Wilder made uh, with some resistance from Paramount and certainly a lot of resistance from the production code because no one was adapting James M. Cain's novels at that time. And uh, he and his co-screenwriter, Raymond Chandler, figured out a way to do it in a way that satisfied the production code. They made the film, and at this point, Wilder had worked with Rocha before and uh, empowered him to write a very dramatic and at times very dissonant score. And, you know, most Hollywood soundtracks, they employ some dissonance, that is, chords that, that strike us as, as uncomfortable in scenes of drama, but... Most Hollywood scores did not make dissonance prominent, with the exception of something like Steiner's King Kong, where it was justified by the, the horror and the fantasy, and ditto Franz Waxman's score for The Bride of Frankenstein. But right with this terrific main title that you're about to hear for Double Indemnity, Rocha writes a, a, a very uh, strong score based on lack of musical resolution and dissonance. And there's a fun story about it that Rocha told in his autobiography, uh, where he... Uh, in which he conveyed that this score almost did not survive. Um, he said that uh, he was called into the office of Paramount's musical director, and uh, I will quote Rosha here. He explained that the music was very bad. He told me it belonged in Carnegie Hall. I thanked him, but he said he hadn't meant it as a compliment. He then asked why I hadn't written something attractive, to which I replied that Billy Wilder's film was about ugly people doing vicious things to each other. Once the premiere was over and the film went over well, Buddy De Silva, Paramount's head of the music department, thought it was a wonderful score, and the musical director changed his tune, end quote. And Rocha has also told that story where he's literally standing next to the musical director at the time when the musical director is essentially taking credit for this score, and Rocha was, was wise enough to just keep his mouth shut. But it really did pave the way, and uh, for those of you who know the film, which I suspect is 99.9% .9 of the people listening, if not 100%, you'll remember that the main titles have that wonderful silhouette of the figure on, uh, on crutches walking toward us, and Rosha accompanies that image brilliantly, I think. to hear a couple of the other themes from Double Indemnity, which relate to specifically the main characters, played by Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Yes, we are. And it, it, um, 
it's fascinating to listen to this score and to read about how it was created because Billy Wilder was an Austrian who came to America and was very well schooled in music. He loved jazz, but he also knew concert music. And uh, many listeners will recall that in Double Indemnity, there's a sequence at the Hollywood Bowl where we hear some of Schubert's unfinished symphony, a great classical work. And, um, Apparently, according to Rocha, it was Billy Wilder's suggestion that Rocha write a an anxious theme that that uh, would come in whenever we hear the plotting and the scheming, this sort of urgent figure for strings that would be similar in feel to the opening of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, which is a very dramatic, mysterious opening. And it's a very subtle way that the the, the what we call the diegetic music, that is the music that the characters in the film can hear, with the non-diegetic music, which is what fancy people call the underscoring written by the composer. So we're going to hear some of that nervous, energetic plotting music, and we'll also hear the theme that Rocha created for Phyllis Dietrichson. And I love that the theme because not only is it an example of Rocha writing a wonderful melody, which he did over and over again, but I think that it reflects the besotted view of Fred McMurray's character uh, and his his vision of Phyllis versus what she is, although it also gives us hints of what she is. So there's a lot going on in this music. on now to a couple of the movies that Roja scored for Universal Studios in the 40s for the producer Mark Hellinger. One of them was Criss Cross, the great 1949 noir with Burt Lancaster and Yvonne DiCarlo. And we're going to hear the main theme here, or the opening theme from the opening credits, which has two of the main themes from the film score. Yes, and this is a, not only a terrific piece of Rocha's very dramatic music uh, and his the writing style, which you will notice is not dissimilar from the kind of music you would write for the later biblical epics, where you would hear a theme and then the theme would be answered, repeated in effect, by another group of instruments in a very bold statement. Um, 
this was a style that that worked for him really throughout his career, and he had a very strong dramatic sense. and And his detractors might say that his scores have a certain similarity, but among his uh, great admirers was another composer, Bernard Herrmann, who said, "Rocha sounds like Rocha. That's his style, you know." And uh, and and you get that Rocha style, and it's certainly what people like Mark Hellinger wanted, and it's extremely effective in the film. I think that by the end of the 1940s, Rocha himself was a little concerned that he was being typed as what was then called a you know crime film composer, but uh, he does a wonderful job setting up the drama of the film, as we'll hear. And the other theme that comes in, the second part of this track, is the main love theme between the Lancaster and DiCarlo characters, which is a really beautiful theme, and it has a very dark feel to it in this opening credits. And what I like about it the most is it has this swirling, kind of circular feel, which is very much yeah. like their relationship in the movie, where they are drawn to each other, but they're inevitably they drag each other down, almost like a whirlpool, where fate just drags them down and they can't escape. classic with Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner. And we're going to hear an excerpt from the movie that involves some dialogue at the beginning between Edmund O'Brien's character and Ava Gardner's character. And it's set in a bar, restaurant, where there's a piano playing in the background. And we're going to hear this bouncy piano theme coming in that's then going to combine with this very powerful main theme that Roja wrote for the orchestra. Yes, that's right. And I think that this is a good time to mention that there are really two kinds of music that we're hearing in noir titles of the 1940s especially, and that is the underscoring written by the people like Rocha and so forth. And then you have all the source music or diegetic music that the characters are hearing. And since so many of these films take place in dives, (laughs) in bars, in places where there's a piano player or a band, there's a lot of great music and, and more contemporary popular music going on in the backgrounds of these films, which I think makes a really nice uh, counterpart and, uh, and, and musical balance with the more 19th century style or early 20th century style of the, the film scores themselves. And all the studios did this, and um, it was a great chance to sometimes get in songs that the studios owned. For example, in Phantom Lady, you hear uh, very prominently a song called I'll Remember April that was written for an Abbott and Costello movie, Ride, Ride em Cowboy, but became a huge hit and is still covered. Uh, it's a jazz standard, a great song, and they use it almost 
almost as a plot point in uh, Phantom Lady. And in The Killers, you have that similar kind of background music. And I will just say that I think the studio that did this best was Warner Brothers because they not only had a great catalog of music themselves, songs written for their own films, but they were willing to license music that people liked. So, for example, when Howard Hawks made The Big Sleep, there's a lot of great and still very popular songs. I think you'll recognize just about every song that's played in the background during the uh, during the, the restaurant or club scenes because Hawks just loved pop music. He loved the, the hits of the day, so he would work those in. So this is a nice example of a sequence that begins with that kind of music, the contemporary music, the kind of things that the, the audience would have known and listened to at least, sometimes specifically and sometimes just in feel, that then dovetails into, and you will know when it happens, the Miklas Rocha underscoring in The Killers. And when Roja's big theme comes in in this track, as we're about to hear, it's the main theme associated with the title characters, The Killers, played by Charles McGraw and William Conrad. If it sounds very familiar, it's because there's <laughs> another connection with it, which we'll mention right after we hear this excerpt from the film. Too bad it had to catch up with you now. Let's get out of here, Mr. Redden. I'm nervous. Where do you want to go? Doesn't matter. Take me back to your hotel with you. I'll pop my nose. I'll wait for you. Don't go away. is a story with that main four-note killers theme that we just heard there connected with another uh, television show in particular, right? Yes, indeed. This is both a nice story and something of a sad story because uh, you probably said, hey, what is the Dragnet theme doing in the middle of the killers? Well, um, some, some lawyers thought the same thing later when a, 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 an extremely talented composer named Walter Schumann wrote the music for, among other things, Dragnet, initially the radio series and the TV series, and his Dragnet theme is very, very similar to what we just heard in uh, Rocha's score from The Killers. It's not exactly the same. Um, it, you'll notice that in the Rocha version, there's a rest on the first uh, beat of the measure, so it goes rest, bum, ba-dum, bum, rest, bum, ba-dum, bum. 
bum, and uh, musicians will recognize that interval as a very basic minor third. So I think that this is a case of very ac- of accidental overlap where a composer many, well, a few years later, let's say, not many, but a few years later, uh, Schumann wrote the the Dragnet theme, and he probably saw the killers, and I certainly don't think he intended to to plagiarize the theme. I think it was a case where it was a case where either he remembered it or it was a coincidence, but uh, it was deemed that uh, it was, you know, you'll have to look up the case, but it was it was uh, basically judged that uh, the, the music was too similar and that sort of haunted him for the rest of his career, uh, and Schumann said that it was inadvertent. And, and I will also say parenthetically that this very situation is one that composers in Hollywood were forever in terror of, which is that they were writing under extreme pressure a theme for film, and they sometimes wondered, did I write that, or is that a song I heard 10 years ago? And we could do an entire program, but we won't, of, of pieces of music that overlap. Uh, some very famous ones, and people will say, oh, those really are the same notes. Um, so, yes, poor Walter Schumann, uh, uh, but I have to say he wrote a superb score for The Night of the Hunter, really an outstanding piece of work, and uh, I think he just fell victim to uh, using the same notes that Rocha did, unfortunately. Let's move on to various composers in the 1940s scoring for film noir and their style that reflected the house style of the studio they worked for. We're going to start with MGM, which was not really associated that much with film noir, but did have some big titles. (laughs) But they did have some big titles, most prominently, The Postman Always Rings Twice. So we're going to hear part of the main theme written by George Bassman. Yes, and um, you're absolutely right. MGM was not a noir studio. Louis B. Mayer did not like the kind of film that The Postman Rings Twice was. It was not until Dory Sherry came in that you got things like The Asphalt Jungle and other movies. Um, Louis B. Mayer was much happier making musicals than the Andy Hardy films. And I will say that although in its day MGM was considered the Tiffany of studios, the one that had more stars than there are in the heavens and so forth, the majority of their films do not hold up as well for a modern audience as, say, a, an average Warner Brothers movie do. The Warner Brothers movies were grittier. Um, every studio, though, had its own house style, its look, its kind of lighting, and they had their own style musically. Fox's style was very spare. There are a lot of films, particularly those uh, neorealist noirs of the late 40s that have very little music in them. Warner Brothers' style was to be very brassy and bold and prominent, and uh, MGM's style musically was, I think, to be a little saccharine. And there's lots of uh, what musicians call vibrato in the strings, which is to say a lot of vibration in the strings, which you associate with romantic music. And you'll hear that in this excerpt from the main title of Postman Always Rings Twice. George Bassman was a very talented composer and arranger. He's best known for um, composing with uh, Ned Washington, the great song, I'm Getting Sentimental Over You. He was a great jazz musician, worked on The Wizard of Oz as an orchestrator. So this is a very talented person. I think the theme is good, but I just personally don't care for the the MGM sound that you're about to hear. And and to me, it sort of captures the dichotomy of that movie, which is that there are lots of good things in it, but they're not quite baked properly.
let's now get into probably the best-known theme from any film noir movie, and that was David Raxon's classic theme from Laura. Yes, the theme that Cole Porter reportedly said when he was asked what was the one piece, what, what is a piece of music he most regretted not composing, he supposedly said Laura. Uh, David Raxon was a dear friend of mine. He changed my life. I was a student at USC looking for direction. I wanted to write this book on Bernard Herrmann, but had uh, no more writing experience than writing for the school paper. And when I approached Professor Raxon, who was teaching there and who was a good friend of Bernard Herrmann's and told him what I wanted to do, he immediately started giving me the names and contact information of people to speak with. And uh, that book was published and it changed my life. So I'm extremely indebted to David and I had the great pleasure of taking his class at USC where he showed most of his films and talked about them. And Laura is the one that really started his composing career in a major way. He had worked in films for a number of years. He had arranged the music for Chaplin's Modern Times, which was released in 1936. But between 1936 and Laura, he was uh, primarily composing uh, uh, Gru, as he called it, horror pictures. And he was not entrusted with any of the A's over at Fox where he was working. Well, then Laura came along, and it was a film that most people were not too enthusiastic about. Um, Gene Tierney wasn't the first choice for the title character. Alfred Newman, who was the head of the music department, looked at it and said, no, I don't think I want to score this. And he offered it to his friend Bernard Herrmann, who said, well, it's okay, but I don't think it really needs music. Uh, put some Debussy in her apartment when she's playing things. So Bernard Herrmann said no, and they went down the list, and uh, they eventually got to Raxon. And when Rax had met with Otto Preminger, the director-producer, uh, Preminger told Raxon that he planned to use the Duke Ellington song Sophisticated Lady to be evocative of the character of Laura. And Raxon, who, even though he wasn't all that successful at that time, was, and was to the end of his life, an extremely forthright person, delightfully so, very candid, said, that's all wrong, Mr. Preminger. And Preminger said, well then, if you want to have your theme in the movie, you have to write me a better song than Sophisticated Lady or a better theme by the end of this weekend. They were having this conversation on a Friday, according to Raxon, and Raxon had to have his theme by Monday. Um, Raxon, and I, I'd like to quote him on this because it's such a great story. It's such a Hollywood story. Raxon had just received a letter from the woman he was then married to, uh, Pamela Randell, a, a model and singer and dancer. And he read this letter, and he said, I couldn't make head or tail of it, and I put the letter aside so I could get back to work. So he kept trying to come up with a Laura theme, stressing out because he had to get this done. It had to be better than a Duke Ellington standard. And then he decided to use a trick that he sometimes used to write music, which was he put written words up on his, um, on his piano stand, and he chose his wife's letter. And I will quote him, Suddenly the meaning of her letter got through to me. She was kissing me off. And then, like in a corny scene from a bad Warner Brothers movie about a composer, I found myself playing the entire first phrase of Laura. And uh, it's a wonderful story. And what we're going to hear is a rather rare cue, relatively rare cue, of Raxon himself conducting the theme at the Hollywood Bowl in 1963. And um, this is essentially the music that you hear in the film when Dana Andrews' character is by himself in Laura's apartment and walks around and walks around. And we realize by the end of that sequence that he's fallen in love with her. And Raxon told me that Zanuck was going to cut that sequence down to nothing before it was scored because it just seemed to play forever with Dana Andrews walking around. And again, Raxon said, please, Mr. Zanuck, please, Mr. Preminger, let me write the music for this. And they saw it and left the scene as it is. 
And now let's hear another one of Raxon's themes from the late 1940s. This is for the movie Force of Evil, directed by Abraham Polanski. And this is a very forward-looking score in a way. It's re it really sounds a lot like a lot of the dramatic scores from the 1950s and 1960s, even though this movie is from the late 40s. Exactly. This is a, a, a pivotal score in the most literal sense. Uh, it's a shame that this movie isn't better known outside noir circles. And uh, it's a very important score. Raxon was an American-born composer, unlike, say, Steiner or Waxman or Adolf Deutsch, who was born in London. Um, and Raxon was so much an American composer, I think we can really hear that in this. And the editor of the book, Abraham Polonsky Interviews, had a great quote when he said of this score that Raxon's music elevated film noir into classical family tragedy. And uh, when you see the movie, you know that that's the story, and the, the music plays a tremendous part in that, and it's a, a very sad irony that Polanski, whose first film this was as a director, he'd been a very successful writer, Polanski was um, blacklisted, and Raxon was on the other side and was a friendly witness, although it was a very painful thing for him in his life, and um, they never spoke uh to each other again, and indeed were exceedingly hostile when speaking about each other, and I knew them both very well because each was a friend of Bernard Herrmann when I was writing the book. And it was fascinating moving between these two very strong-willed men who had made a, a terrific movie with a great score, but sadly it was just a, a one-off because of the politics of the time. Yeah, that is a very sad story. The, um, the last part of this score excerpt we're going to hear in particular, I think, is very similar or has kind of a similar feel to Leonard Bernstein's score for On the Waterfront, which was about five yes. or six years after this. So Raxon, Absolutely. In many ways, Raxon in many ways really was ahead of his time. So let's go ahead and hear this particular score.
let's talk briefly about Roy Webb, who was the main composer for film noir at RKO. And Eddie Muller over the years has talked about RKO in, in terms of the studios and their approaches to film noir, RKO as being the house of noir. Because mm-hmm. in the mid to late 40s, they made, <laughs> they made more great film noir movies really than any other studio. And Roy Webb was the one providing the soundtrack to just about all those movies. Yes, he was. And if there's anyone I would nominate as most underrated composer of the ones that we're talking about, it would be Roy Webb. Uh, he was really terrific. And he didn't have as strong an individual voice, let's say, as a Bernard Herrmann or a Miklas Rocha, where you can hear you know, a few seconds of their music and probably guess who it is. But I don't mean that as a knock at all. He was extremely versatile. At RKO, he could do comedies like My Favorite Wife. And he could do films like Murder, My Sweet. And uh, some of his best scores, indeed the, my favorite of his scores, were written for the Val Luton horror films of the early 40s, like Cat People. Uh, he was another person who came from Broadway. He and Max Steiner started at RKO at really the same time. And um, he was the house composer. And he really supports these films, uh, the noir films, in a way that's difficult to excerpt for us. So you're going to hear, I think, some dialogue with this, and you might think, well, the music's not so much, but I I recommend that our listeners review some of these noir titles that uh, Roy Webb scored and realize just how supportive his music is in a in a really good way and how effective, for example, the nightmare music he writes in uh, is in Murder, My Sweet. And some of the dialogue we'll be hearing in this track is narration from Dick Powell playing Philip Marlowe. Yes, we should probably nod to the Warner Brothers release Murder Is My Beat that released some of these uh, scores edited with music. Well, it was about 7 o'clock. Anyway, it was dark. What are you doing at the office that late? I'm a homing pigeon. I always come back to the stinking coop no matter how late it is. Nothing like soft shoulders to improve my morale. The black pool opened up at my feet again and I dived in. Next thing I remember, I was going somewhere. It was not my idea. The rest of it was a crazy, coked-up dream. I had never been there before. Where's the Steiner, who we talked about earlier, as being one of the most influential composers in Hollywood, and one of his most famous scores for any movie, and in particular for film noir, is for (laughs) The Big Sleep. 
Yes, it is. And it's funny, we don't really think of Max Steiner with film noir, uh, in spite of the fact that he scored a number of Warner Brothers crime films, as they were called then. In fact, he, sort of like Rocha, uh, Steiner was stereotyped when he first went over to Warner Brothers as a staff guy in the late 30s. He was sort of typed as the crime composer for movies like Crime School and Angels with Dirty Faces and Each Dawn I Die. And he really was resistant of that type casting and uh, wanted to do other kinds of films. But you listen to a score that he wrote, like The Big Sleep or uh, some, some of the music we'll hear later, and you realize he really was a good choice for these films. He was a great choice for The Big Sleep. He was Howard Hawks' choice as producer-director. And that's because the film is so many things. It is noir as we'd see it now, but it's also a romantic comedy. It's a film that was tailor-made for uh, Bogart and Bacall and their quote-unquote insolent exchanges. That was what Warner Brothers said in writing they wanted to have more of when they did the reshoots, the insolence between them. So Steiner's score really runs the gamut, but it is very cohesive. And um, we're going to hear about a five-minute selection, I think, here. And so what you're about to hear is the main title, which is typically big Warner Brothers music, but it's a great dramatic main title sequence where we see the silhouettes against the title, so it's certainly fitting what we're seeing. And I think that this main title is literally Max Steiner's musical depiction of what the title means, The Big Sleep of Death. And then we're going to hear, uh, after a few seconds, a kind of whimsical, almost comic figure played by Woodwinds, and that's the theme for Marlowe. And it's a theme that is similar to something that Richard Strauss wrote, the great uh, symphonic uh, composer, that, who was actually a mentor to uh, young Max in Vienna. So Max does a little variation on Bogart, because I think Max saw the humor in this film, and he wanted to make sure that that didn't get left out. So that's why you're going to hear this little, little light-sounding figure for, uh, for Bogart's character and his influence. And then you're going to hear the theme for Carmen Sternwood, which I think is just great. It's sort of this very exotic, they would have said in the 40s, oriental theme. You'll hear a harp glissando as she falls into Marlowe's arms as he's in the Sternwood house. And uh, the music really evokes the druggy, seductive, languid state that she's in quite wonderfully. And uh, then you're going to hear a, a, a waltz, and Steiner was really the waltz king of Hollywood, and the waltz accompanies that early sequence, that unforgettable sequence between Bogart and Dorothy Malone, where he goes into the library and they have a little tete-a-tete, and I think Steiner kind of acknowledges what happens in that time with this beautiful waltz that he writes. And then wrapping it all up is the big love theme that he gives for uh, Bogart and Bacall, befitting the relationship that those characters have in the film, if not in the book. And we're going to start this track with a piece that you mentioned earlier, which is the Warner Studio Fanfare, which was heard with yeah. Warner Brothers movies, many of them for many decades. And Max Steiner wrote that fanfare back in the 1930s. So we'll that's right. Off, we'll start off the big sleep with that.
That concludes part one of our look at classic film noir scores with Stephen C. Smith. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with part two. Hope you'll be listening. Thanks for joining us on Noir Talk.